Welcome to Project VetCast's 18th episode, and thanks for tuning in. Now, this episode is coming out a day later than anticipated, but you can thank Cox Internet Outages, and in better news, my wife and I are leaving our apartment and finally moving into a house. It's about time. Anyways, in this episode, we are going to go take a look at conversational tactics. And no, not necessarily verbal judo, but I mean... I know a few MAs that might argue the phrase verbal judo. No, I'm talking about formulating the points of a conversation and seeing the conversation from different points of view. For the interview portion, I got to interview Dylan, an Army National Guard member, about his experience joining the military and what he talks about as his desire to die. He talks about a life-changing moment for him and how he's been able to turn his experience into relatable moments with his troops. He also has written a book and helps coach people through their hard times. Towards the end, I'm going to cover another hobby. Again, (laughs) I found an interesting list of hobbies, so let's see what weird and fascinating things I get to end up talking about. So, as I mentioned before, guys, we are moving. I'm so happy to get out of this apartment and get into a house where I can make my own rules. I cannot believe... I ever had to argue with somebody about whether or not a cooler was outdoor furniture. We couldn't even put recycling out on our, our deck. It had to be um, inside. So anyways, whatever. Tangent over. What I'm getting at is uh, there's this big podcasting sin, and that is not podcasting in an area that's quiet, in an area that uh, is clear. So because we're moving, you might hear noise. And if you do hear noise, I'm going to uh, kindly ask you guys to uh, please forgive me. anyways conversational tactics viewing the conversation as a group effort between two or more people considering that every person has something they want out of the conversation and one of the bigger things understanding why they want it now you're not always going to get number three but if the more you get out of number three the more you understand the value behind it um working as an ma i learned a lot about what's called verbal judo getting people to do what you want them to I can't tell you how many instructors or FTOs, which are field training officers, I've been trained by that get this grin on their face and just brag about verbal judo. And it was often a zero ground to give your way of the highway conversation. I mean, in security, it's, it's, you know, something different. You have to get some stuff done, but it wasn't like a, I don't know. I think they missed the understanding side of it um, and just force people to do what you want. But Uh, I think verbal judo has been used and abused. Now, let me ask you this. Would you rather be remembered as the person whom every time a conversation was initiated, you got your goal out of it, but that's all that was done? Like, you know, the two people with goals, nobody got anything done but you? Or would you rather be remembered as the person whom somebody initiates a conversation with and you both walk away with your goals obtained? Which person would you rather talk to? Would you want to talk to somebody who only got what they wanted out of the conversation? It's exhausting. Um, Conversational tactics work every time you engage with someone. And when I talk about this, I usually say, find the music in the noise. As humans, we generate a lot of noise. The noise wouldn't probably even make sense to us, but what we want, the music, gets covered up a lot by it. And I'm talking about... um, tangents or emotions or whatever what the goal we're trying to get gets covered up by a lot of things 
in conversations, we even ask questions when we don't understand what uh, the other person is trying to say. Oh, and by the way, I'm an explicit kind of person. And I think you can blame my military experience for that. Um, you're probably going to have to explain something out for me, probably because I've gotten in trouble a few times in the past when somebody was uh, too vague about a task. Assumptions get people killed in dangerous environments, but assumptions get people in trouble when you're wrong about a task or something somebody was trying to say. So again, this is a skill that everyone, especially those in the military should use. If someone is being vague about a task or something they're trying to say is too afraid to say it or won't spell it out for you. Should you even consider doing it or should you consider talking about it? Anyways, tangent over things to look for in a conversation. You want to find the person's goal. The sooner you figure out what it is someone wants, the sooner you can figure out how to leverage their want for yours. Now, this might sound manipulative, but when you leverage, when you first try to understand their goal, what they want, not only does it show a person that you understand, but it shows a person you were listening. You took the time enough to hear them out and hear what they wanted. Listening is a huge skill to have. I can tell you, I need to listen to people a lot more in my life. But honestly, I don't think anyone can suffer from listening too much. So it's a skill everybody should be getting better at. I mean, too much of anything is bad. But if you're someone who struggled from listening too much to somebody, hit me up. I'm really curious. <laughs> so after you understand their goal, watch their demeanor. It'll give you the background story to their goal. It'll tell you understanding why they want it. Um, is somebody intense and emotional about something they're talking about? Or are they lax and carefree? If someone is intense and emotional, the goal is super important to them. Something is causing all the emotions they are experiencing. If they're lax and carefree, it could still have value, but probably not as much. Um, another important thing I think in a conversation is how to talk to someone, no matter their attitude. Always be the considerable one. Use neutral or open body language. A stern look and a cross and crossed arms don't bring results. They bring arrogance and a I know more or better than you attitude. When you talk to somebody, face them. Don't, you know, stand at an angle because standing at an angle is saying that you're hiding something. Probably mentally. I mean, you're not trying to, you might be trying to hide something physically, but when you stand at an angle, um, it's not considered open. It's considered that you're concealing something you don't want people to see. So if you stand and face somebody, you're being open and honest with them. Now, when you throw your hands up and you talk, again, the concealment versus open and honesty, your hand movement. If your hands are facing you, you're hiding something. But if your hands are facing somebody else, you're open and honest. And honestly, think about it. Put your hands up. Uh, when you when somebody says, you know, points a gun at you and says, put your hands up, you're not trying to hide anything. You know, you put your your palms out towards that person so they can see your hands, right? Whereas same concept applies in a conversation. If you put your hand up with your palms open, you know, it's generally, a, hey, 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 calm down or hey, let's talk about this. Let's figure it out. Anyways, so open body language is very important or neutral. Um, always keep your cool in arguments or angry moments. Remember when I talked about the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex or when Aaron Quinones talked about it too in the last interview? Um, 
the amygdala reacts in 0.07 seconds and reacts stronger to negative emotions. You know, think before you speak, sound familiar? If the other person is getting agitated, they are likely not listening to you. And if you're getting agitated, the conversation is going to go nowhere. But if they're getting agitated and you're keeping your cool, you know, hopefully after a bit, they're going to consider themselves the unreasonable one. That is depending on the importance of their goal. But I can't tell you how many times I've started to match agitated energy and somebody's getting agitated with me. So I'm getting back agitating with agitated with them. But then reminding myself to cool down and, you know, just kind of looking at them and understanding and saying, oh, OK, yeah, OK, I understand. Um, and the other person keeps up with the agitation. They're getting more and more agitated because they're now building off with their energy. And I'll just shoot them weird looks like, dude, what, what's wrong? Why are you so agitated or trying to look at them confused as to what did I miss? Are, are you did you forget to tell me something? Should I be agitated? Should I be agitated right now? But it's a confused look of what's going on. Why are we mad? And they usually calm down, but sometimes it's even a funny misunderstanding and we're back on good terms. Remember, the goal is for everyone to walk away happy and heard. So anyways, I hope you guys enjoyed that topic. And now for the interview with Dylan. What's going on, guys? I have with me Dylan here, who uh, he's got a pretty remarkable story. He's got uh, he's a Army National Guardsman in Wisconsin, right? Yep. He's got uh, 14 years of service and you know going strong. So, uh, anyways, I'm not gonna take away from your story. I'm gonna let you tell it. Sounds good. Um, I'm just a normal guy, I think. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I've been through been through quite a bit, of, quite a few things. Um, and I'll, I'll give you, I'll try and give you a, a short rundown of a long story. Um, I started off life six years old, losing my dad to suicide. Um, it was a, it was a moment in my life where, you know, at six years old as a boy, you're looking at the situation and you're like, I don't know how to deal with this. I don't know how to manage this. Um, and on top of that, I, there was a, there's a large part of it where I felt like I knew he wasn't coming home when he told me. Um, and I still remember to this day, you know, watching him walk out and finding out the next day that he had passed and had, you know, did it by suicide. Um, so I lived with a lot of guilt, a lot of shame, a lot of regret, um, surrounding that moment. There's a lot to it. Um, and then following that, I, uh, I was abused by the next man in my life, uh, for, you know, anything I did wrong. I got, I got hit with a, you know, that one of those old, Western belts from, you know, small, small on my back all the way down to my calves. Um, so that taught me a lot about pain. It taught me a lot about, you know, suffering in silence and, and, you know, suffering just to spite people, uh, was, was a pretty common theme throughout my life. And, uh, you know, from, you know, from six years old on, I, I just, I always felt like I was in pain. Um, I always felt like I was, I was struggling with something, um, didn't always know what, you know, you can, you can always, you always know, you know, like your dad's gone. Um, but it just always seemed to manifest itself in, in so many different ways. 
um, was bullied in high school. I was a pretty scrawny kid, um, yeah. six foot nothing, or you know, six foot tall, but you know, no no meat to to support it. Um, and yeah, from that you know from that point on, it was it was I want to join the military. Um, and I would tell people, you know, as I told you before, um, I would tell people because it was nine eleven. Um, you know, I was this was two thousand eight when I joined uh, Wisconsin Army National Guard. Um, joined because, you know, nine eleven was the easy thing to say back then. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it, that wasn't true. It, the reality was, I wanted to, I wanted to end my life, but I wouldn't do it myself. I wouldn't be my dad. Um, and so, when I joined, it was it was full throttle trying to get on a deployment. I I came to my unit, and they were literally leaving. Um, and I was like, I. I want to go, but I didn't know how to, how to verbalize that or bring that up. And they were gone before I ever had a chance to say, you know, can I come? And so, you know, from that point on, I just started uh, trying to jump on any deployment I could. And I finally got one in 2012 to Kunar province, Afghanistan. Um, It's pretty, it's pretty rough. You know, like I, I was, I managed the, um, the, the medevac and, you know, the, the flight line operations for, for a while there. And I saw a whole lot of, whole lot of casualties. I never thought I I would see, you know, I saw guys coming off the bird that had half a, half a head missing, but still walking and talking. I saw guys that, um, you know, lost limbs, um, you know, gunshot wounds. I saw everything you, you could probably see, um, you know, and just, this is my first experience with life and death outside of, you know, my, my father walking out of my life. And, um, it's pretty, it was pretty traumatic in many ways because I, I didn't really know what I was doing. Right. I thought about suicide since I was six years old at this point, I was 22, but, um, did not really understand what death was until I saw stuff like that. I saw guys, uh, you know, unfortunately pass, um, during that time. And, you know, you live in a war zone for long enough and you just don't really understand what it's doing to you, how it's affecting you. Yeah. Um, and you're just trying to survive most of it. You're just trying to, you know, get to the next meal in, in many, in many regards. And, um, came home with, uh, undiagnosed PTSD. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't need a doctor with, um, I don't need a doctor to tell me that I have done enough research, uh, since, you know, since then to, to really understand, I was certainly struggling with my own version of PTSD, not just from the war, but also from my dad, um, and the abuse that, that happened to me after that. Um, just never, never connected the dots, never, never put any thought into it. But, uh, yeah, I tore my ACL three days after I got home from Afghanistan. Um, and so they sent me back to Fort Knox Mm. and I, you know, it, it was probably the lowest point of my life, which is interesting because what's to follow, obviously, you know, but what's to follow is really the lowest. But I was in Fort Knox for eight months and I did not I did not feel like I deserved to be there. Right. I had just gotten through an 11-month deployment to Afghanistan, not a scratch on me. I get home and on leave, I tear my ACL doing jujitsu. And I get sent to 
Fort Knox. And I'm like, why am I here? I could totally do this at home. I could totally get this fixed at home and not have to deal with, you know, not have to take up space Yeah. where, where there's guys that are here with, you know, my roommate had a broken back. He had a broken leg. He had severe TBI and severe PTSD because he had his, his Husky got blown 35 feet up a mountain um, with, from an IED in, in Afghanistan. And I'm like, I don't, I don't deserve to be here. I don't, yeah. I do not feel like I, I should be here at all. And, um, you know, I lived with that for not only those eight months, but I, I lived with the fact that I was suffering from PTSD. Yeah. I was not sleeping. I was not, you know, managing what happened to me, um, in Afghanistan at all. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was just a, a massive struggle to, to deal with that and to overcome that. And I came home, uh, about seven months later, it was supposed to be a year long, uh, a year long recovery. And I, I got out of there in seven months just cause I was like, I was so motivated to get the fuck out of there. Yeah. Um, and I did. And when I came home, I realized that I was out of the, you know, out of the frying pan and into the fire. Cause you know, stepping back into civilian life after you've been deployed for thir- you know, t- 11 months to Afghanistan, then another seven or eight months to isolation basically i i learned about isolation you know 10 years before covid you know i was i was isolated for for eight months i had contact with my roommate and you know the the people in for information i didn't talk to anybody i didn't know anybody i was 500 miles away from home yeah and i come back and i i just have no idea how to integrate into society i i felt like i was invincible because i was dumb and young and just coming home from Afghanistan and, you know, in many ways, I just really wish I had died um, because this was a whole nother world to me trying to communicate with people and tell them not only what happened to me before Afghanistan, but now I've got to figure out how to feel my way through what happened in Afghanistan um, and in Fort Knox and, and try and manage all of this emotional damage, right? like the, the TikTok sound, emotion emotional damage <laughs> how you know i and yeah i'm a, i'm just inundated with tiktok now but yeah yeah i mean it's it, it took it took years to kind of figure myself out and you know it it didn't work that well um i don't mean to laugh that hard but that the dudes for in his voice especially in the past week it's gone through my head like <laughs> three or more times and i'm just sitting there emotional like, I damage i can't say this out loud i just can't because it's not um i would get judged for for doing that and even though like it's funny you know it's funny to like hear in my head people would stare at me and like dude that's not right yeah <laughs> anyway sorry but it's funny yeah <laughs> but yeah i mean like i you know after after i got back from afghanistan um and fort knox and that was end of 2013 2014 2015 were pretty hard on me and in march of 2015 it ultimately came down to after suffering with suicide ideation, something I had hid from a lot of people for, uh, I shouldn't say a lot of people, hid from everyone for 19 years of my life ever since my dad committed suicide. Yeah. Um, it finally caught up caught up with me. It was a, a low point in my life and it was a, it was a big struggle for me. Um, I had just broken up with my, my ex-girlfriend a, a, like a month prior to this um, and I just didn't know 
I didn't know what to do. I felt like a burden on everybody. I felt like I was, I was worthless. I felt like I was hurting people. Um, a whole lot of feelings came up and, and surrounded that moment. And I found myself, you know, sitting on the floor with a Glock 34, um, with one round in it and the rest of them, I don't know why I just dumped right in front of me with the, the mag. And I just had my gun in my hand and I, I put it, I remember putting it right behind my ear. Um, cause I was gonna, I was gonna, you know, I studied shooting people, right. Obviously, yeah. um, I was going to shoot my medulla oblongata cause that's one of the instant shutoff switches, um, that and the heart, if you hit it right, but the medulla is an instant, instant off and it's located right, at, right at the brainstem. You can access it right through the front of the nose. Not that it, this is important to know for most people, but like, that's how intricately I thought about this. Yeah. You know, and I had been thinking about it for a couple of years after I had been through Afghanistan because, you know, in Afghanistan, you might have to shoot people. Yeah. Um, and so like these deep and morbid thoughts were things that I was, I was actively thinking about almost every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I finally sat there and when I felt that the muzzle, that cold muzzle, you know, against my, against my neck, I was like, why am I doing this? Yeah. Why, why am I, you know, why, why has my life led up to this moment where I'm about to decide whether to end my life or not? Um, and that's where a lot of things just kind of flooded into my mind of like so many questions I needed to answer. And so yep. many, you know, so many thoughts kind of came to mind and, you know, really it was, um, it was the first time I really connected with what my father might've been thinking in his own moment of, you know, follow through, right? Like he, he, um, he had the resolve, uh, to, to, to make that choice. And I didn't, um, and I, I'm thankful for that, right? Like I'm, I'm thankful that I didn't because yeah. now I'm sitting here, obviously I'm sitting here with you, but like, uh, you know, 2020, I started talking about suicide and mental health and all of, you know, trauma and grief and loss and all of these things on TikTok. Yeah. And now I'm sitting here with 550,000 followers or 560,000 followers. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've impacted millions of people at this point. Um, ones that have that have told me I've saved their lives and ones that have not told me, but I'm assuming that there's, if there's people that tell me I've saved their lives, there's a lot of people that have not told me. Um, Do you, and I know I didn't ask you this question before, but I also didn't know about uh, what you were seeing when you were downrange. Uh, do you think not being able to go on deployment uh, with your unit when they first left, and the deployment you ended up going on where you saw so much death, do you think that kind of gave you a different perspective in life? Yeah. You, you think know, that would have that changed your story from I went on, you know, deployment with my first unit and you think your story would have been different? Absolutely. I mean, uh, I think I think anything, any changes to this story would have been a lot different. Right. Gotcha. And, and and that one even more so because where they went in the first deployment was Iraq and they did prison duty. So they, they basically, they basically built ISIS in many ways. Um, they were the unit that, you know, unfortunately had the, the task of, um, managing most of Iraq's prison system, gotcha. uh, or the, the U S military's prison system in Iraq. Um, and, uh, obviously a lot of disgruntled Iraqis became ISIS members. 
um, you know, I had a friend that literally knew Baghdadi. Um, like he had seen him many times, had literally handcuffed him in, in many ways. Like, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what deployment I would have went on. Mm. Um, and it was not fun, right? It wasn't, it wasn't one that, that left. sound like it. Yeah. I mean, it left a pretty bad taste in a lot of people's mouths from, you know, dealing with that. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I think it, it definitely would have changed things. What, um, what are some ways that you have been able to express um, what you've been through since, uh, you know, figuring out, you said, uh, when did you say it was that you had this realization where you thought you were going to commit suicide? I mean, many times, right? Like at, at that point it was, after after deployment it was it was almost a constant thought it was at at that point it was like when you know every day i'd wake up and be like why shouldn't i well, commit suicide do you remember the date of the last time like you know where you were talking about you you literally put the gun up to your head do you remember that day specifically or i i don't remember the date um it was march of 2015 that's, that's okay. the best i can give you i think it was early you yeah. know like maybe six, seven, eight March. But again, like I don't, I didn't well, keep no. track of the date, but yeah. Um, the, yeah. Usually when people go through something as significant as that, I mean, like it's, I guess important for other people to know, like, you know, you, you usually remember the time you go through a traumatic experience. And, yeah. and again, it's not like usually the specific date, but you know, like people can usually remember the month and, uh, I mean, I think that's pretty big. Yeah. I, I mean, I remember everything about that moment, but the date. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I remember kind of thinking I, it took three days after that to, for me to really come to terms with what happened. Yeah. Um, and to understand like, you know, th after three days of overthinking everything and really digging into what happened, I, I came to the realization that one of the reasons I was there was simply because I had remained silent for so long about, my my problems like one i had never told anybody about me me thinking about suicide yeah and so you know one of the one of the choices i made uh in those three days was to open up you know open up to to three as well four people that um were safe people in my life and that um my two friends, Chris and Carrie, were the first two. I, I just talked to them together and, and told them about what happened. You know, they were like surprised, you know, like abundantly yeah. surprised because I had hit it so well for so long. Um, and then I told my sister, who was overseas at the time, um, and then I I had the one, probably one of the hardest conversations I've ever had in my life, and that was with my mom, um, and told her very specifically about what happened yeah um and it's remarkably difficult to tell your mom that lost her husband to suicide that you were sitting on her in her hallway um of her home with a gun in your hand about to end your life um after not telling her that you've yeah. been thinking about ending your life for 19 years um probably one of the most emotional conversations i've ever had to have um but it was fundamentally one of the most important ones 
for me, right? This doesn't happen for everybody. No. Um, but it was it was it was the first time I had actually exposed that to somebody um, that you know re- required me to be accountable. Yeah. To them, you know. I mean, I'm I'm I'm. Was it? How did you? How did it make you feel after talking to these to these people though? My my sister and my friends. Mm-hmm. wasn't I, you know i don't remember a huge a huge difference but when i told my mom yeah uh it was just a massive relief yeah you know it was and she took it you know the, i think the the best way you can in many yeah. regards um and, and from my own experience now helping people through this process um honestly when when you just are silent and you allow people to express themselves. I don't care if you disagree with how they did it or what they're doing or how they feel, just shut the fuck up. And that's what my mom did. I, and I like, I, I can't, I can't express how important it is to just allow people to speak um, and not to fix, not to solve, not to, you know, not to share your own experience in, in many ways. And it's just, when, when people need to express, they need to express. And yeah. and that's what my mom allowed me to do that day. Um, and at the end of it, she was just like, I love you, you know, and, and, you know, we were both in tears, just distraught. And, um, but it was a moment where we both kind of, I think we both needed, you know, a, a certainly a, a moment that brought us together in, yeah. in a lot of ways. Um, sorry. Um, so you you also mentioned that afterwards, um, I think in 2020 you said you came out with a book. Yeah, yeah. So um, 2021 actually, I started writing the book in. <laughs> I started the writing writing the book like six years ago. Didn't didn't really go anywhere um, until 2020 when I got back from Afghanistan and my second deployment. Yeah. Um, and COVID happened, and I was like, "Well, what else am I going to do? I you know my my firearms instruction job wasn't going to pay the bills with." with being having 10 people in the range every, you know, at, at a time. Uh, so I started writing the book. I, f- I wrote 90% of the book in like six months. Oh, wow. um, and then, you know, my final experience with uh, you know, our, our unit lost four guys to suicide in 2020 alone um, over about, a, it was about a year and a half span, but yeah. Um, yeah, I, our unit lost four guys to suicide and, and we had a kind of a suicide symposium in February of 2021. Um, and it was the first time I really kind of opened up about what I had been through mm-hmm. um, in front of people, you know, in the military. Yeah. Right? Like I, I had wrote, I had written a book, right. And, and done all the things, talked about it on TikTok, but I had never like stepped in front of people in the military my colleagues and people I had, you know, high, high esteem and high respect for, um, until that day. And I just started, just started saying what, what I probably should have been saying all this, all this time. Um, and, and started talking about suicide and, you know, for the first time that was, that was really a moment that captured, I think the final chapter of my book and that, that solidified everything. I, I finished the book and, February, March of 2021, and then published in July. Nice. I think that's a pretty big thing. You know, what you said with uh, how hard it was to talk in front of your unit. 
about what thoughts you've gone through, what you've been through, because in a way you kind of expect, um, you know, you, you see the negative aspects and consequences of what you say. And that, that kind of, at least I know you want to be able to open up and talk about it, but at least I know in, I guess in my experience or, you know, from talking to other people, it's just hard because it just takes one either terrible person or somebody to be like, well, you need to go talk to this person or I think your career is done here. Is that kind of what you went through? It wasn't necessarily what I went through, but when I looked at my unit, um, it, it, it was something I didn't trust. You know, I looked at the leaders that had had historically been around me and not necessarily like my immediate leadership. So I had great immediate leadership. Yeah. Um, but I didn't trust the process of how the military necessarily deals with these things. Yeah. You know, and and how how these things are stig- uh, stigmatized in many ways. Um, and yeah, I, I had literally seen guys that had expressed, you know, uh, things about mental health that literally put them in situations where they were, they were kicked out two years later because of other reasons, you know, just because they, they were stigmatized to the point of there was no point in continuing to, to put effort into the military when nobody cared about them. Nobody liked them anymore. You know, no, like you were the guy that needed help and nobody, nobody wants to, have a a weak link in the unit right and that's yeah that's historically how it it went for for guys that i watched in in my time and you know in many ways i i wanted to prove that wrong i wanted to to kind of show that like leaders struggled right like guys struggle and even even if you're not in a position to be 100 percent, yeah you're still able to function and be a part of the unit um, you know, and, and it was, it was a big transformation in to this day, you know, I, I give suicide prevention talks now, um, rather than letting some E5 get, that gets told the, the night before, Hey, you've got a suicide awareness brief to give tomorrow. I yeah. take that, I take that role upon myself and I have those discussions. I have those conversations. I talk about my story. Um, you know, I went to, I went to sniper school last year and they do a psych eval. Um, and they, so I released my book in July, July 17th. Um, I did my psych eval 10 days later and I was, I was seriously contemplating. Even then I was seriously contemplating, like, do I tell them my story (laughs) or do I, or do I keep it to myself? Um, you know, cause I was still, it's still like a stigmatizing thing. I'm like, I want to go to sniper school, but I don't know if they're going to let me with this story. And I took a pretty big calculated risk and I, I told it and you know, what, what's remarkable is I went to sniper school, right? I told them everything about my story. I told them all of the, the hardships that I felt. And I also told them obviously where I am now in a much better place where, you know, I told you before, I don't remember the last time I, I thought about suicide myself, right? I talk about suicide daily, but I don't, I don't remember when the last time was when I was like, Dylan, I want to, I don't want to, I don't want to live anymore. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's possible to have these conversations, not only with people within your unit, if, 
you know, if you've got a good unit, but also within the mental health side of the military, the, you know, the, um, psychological eval stuff and to, to still have it not affect your career. Like I'm still, you know, I've been, I've been highly respected my unit ever since and, and placed into positions of, you know, advancement. So, you know, it's, 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 it's possible. It's out there. Things are changing. It's not the same military I joined in 2008. That's awesome. Um, and so, you know, is it perfect? Absolutely not. Right. That's the military, but it is changing. It is growing. And I think, you know, the more, the more we have these conversations, the more willing, you know, cause people run the military. Yeah. The more, the more willing people are to, to hear, hear it out. No, I absolutely agree. Um, Is there a, if I am somebody who is suffering from either suicidal ideation or um, just thinking about suicide at all, is the, and you know, you seem like somebody I can talk to. Is there a way to, to, to talk to you, to communicate? Yeah. Uh, I, so one, I'm on TikTok. Um, obviously it's, it's just my name, Dylan underscore Sessler. I'm on Instagram. I'm on YouTube. Um, I've got a podcast called the Dylan experience. I, I, talk about these things with other people, um, that have been through them. Um, but I also run a mental health coaching, uh, like zoom session, right? So if you, if you ever want to schedule, you can go to www.dylansessler.com, go to my coaching tab and, and simply schedule a session with me. My first one's always free. Um, so you're not losing anything but time in, in that. And, and you can connect with me if it works out, it works out. I don't expect me to always fit with everybody. So yeah. You know, I try and be, I try and offer a place of safety, a place where, you know, you come to me, it stays with me. I, I'm yeah. not going to, I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to criticize you. I'm not going to, you know, tell you you're a piece of shit or anything like that. I'm just going to listen to you. Right. I assume I know nothing about you. Right. And, and even if I have acquaintances, right, I've had, I've had people from my past reach out and be like, Hey, I want to work with you. Yeah. You know, I, like people from high school, um, I had a friend of my grand grandfather's reach out to me. Like I've worked with a lot of different people um, with trauma, with suicide, with, uh, you know, sexual violence, um, so many different things. Right. And I'm, I'm just here to help. I'm here to listen. I'm here to give you a, a space where, you know, I'm, I'm here to give you what I wish I had. Yeah. Realistically, someone that I fully fundamentally believed in would not take my story and do something negative with it. Someone that would just listen, allow me to process what I need to process. And that's what I do. Um, and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but do you have a, either a guesstimation or a, um, a number of, of people that you've helped so far? With the mental health coaching, probably uh, well over a hundred um, okay. with TikTok. God, I don't even know. I, I have gotten thousands of messages from people that that tell me um, at this point with two years of two years of TikTok under my belt, you know, telling me I've saved their lives. And I'm like, I I'm just speaking right. Like yeah. most how I look at it is if you think I saved your life, you're given you're giving me the wrong credit. Right. You, you can give me the credit for speaking the words. But in retrospect, you need to give yourself the words that you know, you, you need to give yourself the gratitude and the um, congratulations to you for doing the work of listening to what I have to say and applying it because 
I just speak. Yeah. You're the you're the one that's living with yourself and struggling through these things. It's up to you. Um, you know, and don't thank me. Thank yourself for for listening. Um, but yeah. A lot of people. And I know I didn't ask this before, but if there what's the through your journey, what is the biggest lesson you've learned? Patience. Yeah. Patience is is it's huge because, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And when you when you look at people, when you look at yourself, we like to think we know what's right and we don't, you know, like I don't know what's right for you, Ian, and you don't know what's right for me. I, you know, when people come to me and ask me, tell me what to do, I'm like, no, because I don't know what's right for you. I don't know, you know, your story. And there's, I've told you a lot about myself. Mm -hmm. but I haven't told you shit about myself. If you look at this, right? Like we make between six and 36, you know, 6,000 and 36,000 decisions a day. How do you expect to know someone? How do you expect to understand someone? Right. I do. I try and understand people for a living and I still get it wrong. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm not meant to understand what I am meant to do is help you understand yourself. And the only way I can do that is to be patient to listen, to understand, be empathetic and support, you know, the process of getting through this yeah. requires patience. It requires time and effort. You were talking about patience and patience is, is hard to come by, but you're also talking about, we like to believe we're right. And, uh, and one of the studies that I was doing, or one of the things I was looking into when I was studying, uh, uh, happiness hormones, I'll call them. I, I feel like I come out of a mental hospital whenever I say that. But uh, <laughs> when uh, happiness hormones, you know, I was reading like being right is a, uh, I think it's dopamine or being right, but like being right, you get happy from being right. So then, yep. yeah, I I like how you said it's important to realize that, you know, we like to think we're right, but you got to sit back and you're, you're still going to get it wrong. Um, yep. Yeah. It's, it's that simple. It's, it's a hard, you know, especially in today's society, especially like social media, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of kind of emphasis on speed and efficiency and all of yeah. these, you know, these buzzwords that are used for business. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and to, you know, to make everything optimized and all that, all that doesn't work. Right. We're, we're not, yep. we're not machines. We were, we were created and crafted you know, in an, in not in this environment, my home yeah. I was crafted out in the woods, right? My software is built for living out in the woods and fighting bears and, you know, picking up berries and shit, right? Like that's where we were built. And so you, you have to kind of put the, you know, put the essential understanding of what technology is trying to push us to understand yep. versus what, what our body is actually built for. And there's a, it's a huge gap in knowledge for, for so many people about what trauma actually does and how it affects yep. the amygdala, yep. um, you know, trauma responses and trauma bonds. If you, you know, dig deep enough, you're, you're going to realize that there's a lot of things that, um, that you don't realize you're doing because, you know, you've been, you've been abused, yeah. you've been hurt, you've been traumatized, you've had grief in your life. Um, and if you don't have someone that can expose these things in a, you know, 
in many ways, a safe way, right? Yeah. It's, it can be a remarkably difficult experience. And that's why people are angry all the time. People are suicidal all the time, yeah. depressed, anxious, all of these things, you know? I really like, so anybody that I've talked to or interviewed about um, traumatic experiences, um, how much they come out and talk about the brain and how like the amygdala or, you know, you know, like your primal brain or your prefrontal cortex, how decision-making is made and like how much studying they put like yourself into studying the brain and how it functions and better understanding that because I'm going to be honest, like, before I started listening to a book about like conversational intelligence, even where it was talking about these hormones and it was talking about how the brain functions, I never even thought about it. But then like, yeah, kind of going back and understanding it, like, you know, studying hormones, I feel like I'm studying like the nuts and bolts of a, um, of a human body. Yeah. And it just blows my mind a little, just even a little bit about how much everything connects and works together. And like, yeah, it's, it's funny that we, we have mental health professionals and for a long time, you know, um, and this isn't necessarily knocking the mental health industry, although there's certainly things that we can knock the, the mental health industry for. Um, you know, you break your you break your back and you, you go to a chiropractor. He has an x-ray. He looks at the back. He looks at that, right? You break your leg. You do the same thing. You go to someone that's focused around that specific body part and they look at it, mm -hmm. right? When you have depression or when you're broken in the mind, do they look at it or do they they expect you to understand how to diagnose yourself right we don't like it, it, we don't actually look at the brain and what's functioning what's not functioning we have a conversation and we say well i've deduced after an hour of conversation that you have bipolar you have depression you have this you have that based on um based on a book called the dsm5 right the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health Disorders, 5th edition, right? And we, we don't even look deeply into what it means to, you know, what the brain actually looks like when it's not, when it's not functioning properly, you know? Yeah, no, and I, I, this is a moment where anybody listening on the podcast or if you're able to watch the interview, um, this is that moment where like, you know, in the military, they knock when things are important. <laughs> um, guys, this is the second person to quote something like, you know, when you break a bone in your body, you get it checked out. But, you know, with mental health, it's different. That's yeah. a this is a knocking point because it's coming from two people. And I and I, I have the feeling that, you know, more people are going to say this. But just the fact that, again, you know, um, it's almost like deja vu. <laughs> yeah. It, and it's. It's not that the DSM-5 doesn't offer important knowledge. It does. But we, we just don't look at mental health in the same way that we look at a broken bone. And, and one, maybe we should. Um, and two, we're always looking for, right, like in the title, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health or Mental Disorders, we're looking to diagnose. Yep. And sometimes I, I just really don't think we need to. I think we need to have a conversation. I think we need to open up this person's eyes to what the reality and the perception of their reality really is mm -hmm. because I don't think they're disordered. I think they have been ignorant for much of their life because they've either been hidden behind someone that's gatekeeping 
support. Yeah. Right. There's there's parents out there that that keep their children protected from all of the the negative things that are out there, but it also takes them away from all of the positive things. Um, there's abusive parents. There's you know there's there's parents that literally do not want their children, but you know hold them nonetheless. And um, you know and it and it always begs the question of if you are struggling in your life right now, there's a reason. Mm-hmm. And usually that reason is in your past, yep. right? And, you know, and I, I look at my story and I'm like, you know, suicide was never the problem for me. It was just the result of all of the, all of the shit that had come up in my life and finally started overflowing to the point where I recognized that there were problems from six years old on and even probably before that, that yep. had just never been dealt with. I was listening to uh, you bring up the amygdala and like talk about how you don't realize trauma affects you. And an example in conversational intelligence, I think it was um, there was a woman who like met her boss, but her boss looked enough like her. I think it was either a friend or a family member that caused a traumatic experience. So yeah. she instantly didn't like the guy, but she couldn't figure out why. Mm-hmm. But uh, but also where you talk about um, they go into diagnosing what you have. I mean, before you said you know, it's, it's not so much the fact that I, that you diagnose people or you sit there and say, Oh, well you have this, you just sit down and take time to, you know, shut up. Yeah. (laughs) Honestly, like I, you know, many of the first conversations I have with people is just, I ask you a question. I shut the fuck up and I listen, (laughs) right? Cause I, I want you to expose to me your perception of reality. Yeah. Because if I don't understand how to see the world through your eyes, I will never be able to show you how I see the world through mine. I think that's a, a big, it's a hard thing to look at things through that way because, you know, we growing up, we automatically assume, you know, everybody's uh, seeing the same thing or something, but you know, yep. it, the hardest thing to realize is that everybody is so different. Yeah. And that's, um, I, I, I look at myself and I, I think I'm a translator in many ways. I'm a translator for, um, for what your past experiences are trying to express to you or what your body's actually trying to express to you. Because, you know, for the longest time, I suppressed everything within me to just continue surviving and continue moving forward. Um, you know, a lot of times I just try and ask questions, right? And in many ways, I reveal, I reveal the answers and I think the best way possible by you exposing it yourself, right? Like, I don't want to answer your questions. I want you to answer your own questions. And that's where, you know, that moment of, you know, like you knock on, you knock on the table in the military. Um, it's where people do it themselves. It's like they're yeah. knocking, they're knocking on their own head and they're like, wow, that's, yeah, yeah, you got me, Dylan. Like, that's, that's a great question. And now I really understand. I kind of loop things back into people and, and, you know, for the first time in their lives, they're, they're realizing what's what's really what's really been the truth and a yeah. truth that they've been hiding from themselves for a long time um i think that we're covered some of the notes i took is there anything else that you want to go over that we haven't touched on no honestly i have to i have to get going i'm i'm a little late for a meeting and Okay. She's cool with it, but I, I do have to get going. Well, let me not take up more of your time. Uh, I don't <laughs> want to stop you there. Uh, dude, I appreciate you for coming on the show. And, uh, Absolutely. And keep it. Keep up the good work, man. Appreciate it, man. Thanks for, thanks for having me on. Of course.
Hey, Dylan, I just wanted to say thank you for coming on to Project VetCast. Um, I think it's really cool that you wrote a book, uh, something I've been thinking about for a long time, but never really actually did. You did it. It's called Defy the Darkness. Um, your coaching service, your the ability to help people with DylanSessler.com. And uh, thank you for your, your service. I think it's really cool to hear your story and how it changed the way you react with your, uh, with your troops. You know, you, you listen to them more, you try to become more relatable and more personal with them so that if they do want to talk about something that it's easier to talk to you about that kind of stuff, because in the military that I'm used to, um, there are topics you just don't bring up. And that's a bad thing when you can't talk amongst your peers or amongst your leadership about the issues that you're facing because you're too scared that it's a sign of weakness or whatever. So again, awesome job, man. Uh, keep it up. So the hobby of choice today is soap making. And you might think, hmm, soap making. I didn't know that was a hobby. And I honestly didn't even think about it as a hobby either. But if you think about it, outside of Pert, Dove, um, all the other typical soap makers you can think of, you have soaps like Dr. Squatch or others that have come out in this kind of movement to create different alternative soaps. But what I didn't know is that essentially soap is a salt of a fatty acid. Now reading that I had to read it over and over and over again because I had to think, wait, soap is salt. What? Soap in chemistry, a salt is a, and I'm going to mispronounce something. And if I do, oops, but there's a lot of big words in this one. Uh, in chemistry, a salt is a chemical compound consisting of an ionic assembly of positively charged cations and negatively charged anions, which results in a compound with no net electric charge. A common example is table salt with positively charged sodium ions and negatively charged chloride ions. So essentially, soap is salt. So we're putting, I never thought I would say something like that. Of, yeah, you know, I put so I put salt on my body every day. <clears throat> that, that sounds terrible, actually. But, <laughs> I mean, it, it kind of makes sense if you think about it. Because we put salt, uh, we put table salt or salt in general on food to preserve it a long time. Or that's why, like, you know, deli meats are salty. Um, so, you know, we would be putting salt on our bodies to preserve the, but I don't know where I'm going with that. Anyways. So there are a variety of methods to making soap. Uh, most soap makers use processes where the glycerol remains in the product and saponification continues um, for many days after the soap is poured into molds. The glycerol is left during the hot process method, but at high temperature employed, the reaction is practically completed in the kettle before the soap is poured into the molds. This simply, a simple and quick process is employed in small factories over the world. Now, I don't know what saponification means. I don't know if you guys know what it is, but it's a formation of a metallic salt of a fatty. Oh, wow, this is getting weirder. Metallic salt, such as soap. Um, the reaction involves treatment of free fatty acids or glycerides. The base and may be considered a special case of hydrolysis when a glyceride is reacting with the base. So there you go. Uh, not only is it a salt, it's a metallic salt, which is weird. Handmade soap from the cold process also differs from industry-made soap in that an excess of fat or coconut oil, uh, a kazumbal process, C-A-Z-U-M-B-A-L, are used. 
Beyond that, needed to consume the alkali, where, okay, metals, um, in a cold core process. This excess fat is called super fatting. I learned a new process of making soap called super fatting. Uh, in the, and the glycerol left in acts as a moisturizing agent. However, the glycerine also makes the soap softer. The addition of glycerol and processing of the soap produces glycerin soap. Super fatted soap. I need to get some of that. Uh, is more skin friendly. What? Super fatted soap is more skin friendly than one without extra fat. Although it can leave a greasy feel. Sometimes an emollient is added, such as jojoba oil or shea butter. I want to know what jojoba oil is. See, so many tangents. So many so many words coming out where now I think, you know, I want to look up, uh, I want, I need to find some super fatted soap. What's an example of that? So I can figure out if it will help my skin or not. And then like, what is jojoba oil? What do I not know about in life? Uh, anyways, sand or pumice may be added to produce a scouring soap. The scouring agents serve to remove dead cells from the skin surface be, uh, being cleaned. This process is called exfoliation. To make antibacterial soap compounds such as triclosan or triclocarbon, carbon, not carbon, O-N, um, triclocarbon can be added. There is some concern that the use of antibacterial soaps and other products might encourage antimicrobial, antimicrobial resistance in microorganisms. So that is a general, that is a legitimate concern. You know, anytime you use antibacterial soaps, um, you know, like we use antibiotics and now we have like a super bug problem. So anyways, I learned a ton of stuff. Soap gets a lot more uh, scientific than I thought. And uh, not only did I learn that I put salt on my body, um, but soap starts out as a metallic salt. And then you can add stuff like uh, excess of fat. No, hold on. Coconut oil. You add stuff to a process to uh, super fat a soap, and the super fat soap is skin friendly. And then, what is jojoba oil? Now I'm curious. Jojoba, also commonly called goat nut, deer nut, pig nut, wild hazel, quinine nut, quinine, quinine, coffee berry, or grape box bush. Is native to the southwestern United States. Uh, jojoba is grown commercially to produce jojoba oil. Um, interesting. So, guys, I'm not going to take up more of your time rambling on about uh, soap making, but if this is something you're interested in, um, it's got a lot of uh, science behind it, and I'm sure it will be fun to learn about. <laughs> Anyways, I got to go find some super fatted soap. So with that being said, um, so sorry about all the uh's. I was literally looking for my uh, end script so that I could try and cut it into that part of that segment, but that did not work. So that is it for the 18th episode, guys. If you ever need to talk or have any questions at all, please feel free to email me at ian at projectvetcast.com. Um, you can even hit me up on social media. I'm happy to listen, bounce ideas back and forth, or help you figure things out. I'm a veteran, and if you're a veteran too, I'm your brother. <laughs>